Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, it's our Tell Show. It's a Thursday. It is May the 5th, the year of our Lord 2022. And we got a whole lot of noise to turn down today of stuff going on in the news cycle. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time. Uh, going to cover a couple different things on today's program. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple that got married on a plane to Vegas because they couldn't get to Vegas for their quickie wedding. We'll end with that little bit of good news because we got a whole lot of rough news on today's program. Uh, me, avowed Baptist, going to agree with the Pope and praise the Pope who took up uh, and took issue with uh, Patriarch Kirill, who has become a Vladimir Putin stooge and has been excusing the violence in the war in Ukraine. We'll touch on that in a little bit. Also, our friends over in the UK, the benches of Parliament, the iconic green leather benches in the House of Commons. There was some shenanigans going on. A uh, member of Parliament has resigned because he got caught looking at pornography on his cell phone. Not once, but twice. We'll cover that story in a little bit. Great guest today. Uh, Joe Zemanski returns to the program. Our friends at election-daily.com. They are invaluable in this particular election season. They do great work. Joe joins us. We're going to break down the results in Iowa and Indiana from on Tuesday night, and we're going to look ahead to all the other primaries through the rest of the month of May. But real quick first, we want to touch on abortion. Uh, It's been on everybody's mind the last couple of days since the draft copy of Alito's ruling on abortion. We don't know where that story is going to go. We're going to continue to cover it, of course. Um, It's amazing how this story goes. Right before I came on to do her tell, I was actually on Times Radio over in London, England, talking to them about it. This story's even being covered over there. But our friends at Punchbowl News, which we highly recommend you sign up for, it's free, their newsletter. Here's some data points I'm reading from Punchbowl News here, that abortion, no matter how much fundraising it does and how loud it is in our socio-political environment it is, in this particular midterm campaign, it had been a second-tier issue. Listen to this from Punchbowl News. Only one Democrat running for Senate had aired a television ad mentioning abortion. That's Morgan Harper in Ohio. Just 19 total ads had ran in the Senate this year on the subject of abortion altogether. The overwhelming number, 18, were paid for by Republican or conservative groups. When Gallup asked respondents, that's the polling company, what the most important problems facing the U.S., fewer than half of 1% answered it was abortion in December 2021, January 2022, or February 2022, March 2022. That number slipped to zero. It fell clear out of the poll. The AP NORC pollsters selected 11 issue areas in December 2021 when surveying respondents on what problems they would like the government to work on. Abortion wasn't even on the list. In our very own February canvas, this is Punchbowl News, just 8% said abortion would be a top focus. That's of the Hill 8s, people that actually work in Congress. Biden barely mentioned 
the issue during his State of the Union address, a bill to codify Roe. We talked about this on yesterday's program. They're talking about we're going to codify Roe. We talked about why that ain't going to happen with the 50-50 Senate. And it garnered only 46 votes in the Senate on February 28th. All that's changed now, however, reading from Punchbowl News. The big question is by how much and what will the final decision look like in the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban case at the center of the controversy that's Dobbs versus Planned Parenthood? Can Democrats use the shock and anger felt by abortion rights supporters over the looming Roe ruling to turn around what's been looking like a dismal cycle for them? And then Punchbowl News goes through to talk to various folks about what they think about this and whether it will. I have doubts that it will. I think it'll drive fundraising and engagement, as we were talking to our friends over in the UK a little bit ago about. You can find that on uh, times.radio, by the way. When I was on with Kayla McDonald, appreciated him. It'll drive the fundraising and engagement. Will it actually change votes at the poll? Think about abortion as it's so polarizing that pretty much everybody has their mind made up on it one way or the other. I suspect it won't be the biggest issue. I suspect the economy still will be. I expect there will be a little foreign policy like the war in Ukraine. But mostly this is going to be an economic and a political midterm election like most midterms are. Is abortion going to creep in there? Maybe in the primaries especially. Uh, We've already seen fundraising numbers go up for the Democratic Party. We saw a slew of fundraising for Planned Parenthood. But it's still the economy, stupid. So no matter how loud the abortion issue gets, is it going to show up at the ballot box? Probably not. And as we talk to our UK friends, remember something. When this ruling actually does come out in June or whenever it does come out, this is the end of the middle of the beginning again. All these lawsuits for all the 26 states that have rules on the books that will take effect once Roe goes down, those will all be litigated. Lawsuits are already written, ready to go. In other words, we're going to start this process all over again. We've spent the last 40 plus years legislating and legally debating abortion. I highly suspect we will spend the next 40 years debating abortion. So keep your powder dry, keep your bearing, and understand that this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. More hotel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, it's not often when you talk about people getting in a good zinger or one-liner in trash talk that you put the Pope at the top of that list, but he managed to do it. Full disclosure, I'm a Baptist, but uh, all credit due to his holiness. Um, Pope Francis said in an interview, this is from theweek.com, that he told Patriarch Kirill, that's the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, we've been highly critical of him, we've covered him, how he has been giving spiritual, pseudo-spiritual cover for the war in Ukraine. Uh, We'll talk about that some other time. Francis told the Italian newspaper, uh, the leader of the Orthodox Russian Church, not to, quote, transform himself into Putin's altar boy, end quote. Um, The first 20 minutes he read to me with a card in hand, all the justifications from Ward, Francis said. I listened to him and I told him, I just don't understand anything about this, brother. We are not clerics of state. We cannot use the language of politics, but that of Jesus. Francis also confirmed that the two clerics had agreed to postpone a face-to-face meeting in Jerusalem that had been scheduled for June. It could be an ambiguous signal, the pontiff explained. The Roman Catholic Church, of which Francis had split from the Eastern Orthodox Church, spoiler alert here, this happened in 1054. Eastern Orthodoxy comprises between 14 and 16 uh, autocephalous, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, self-headed churches, of which Kirill's Russian Orthodox Church is by far the largest This week, before his Zoom call with Francis Kirill, 
close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, described the war in Ukraine as a metaphysical struggle against a godless international order based on excess corruption and, quote, gay parades. Francis has repeatedly called for peace in Ukraine, as we have covered. Uh, This is all nonsense. This is somebody who's completely in the pocket of the dictator Vladimir Putin. He's giving them an excuse to wage an aggressive war that is murdering, killing, and damaging cities, killing thousands of innocent civilians. Uh, This man is godless in every sense of the word. He hides behind his robes, vestments, and hat. He is evil. He is wicked. And if not in this life, I would hate to be anywhere near the judgment that will be coming for him for the blood that is on his hands. Good for Pope Francis for pushing back against this despicable human being. I don't care what his fancy title is or the religion he claims. His actions tell me what he is about, and he is about not the work of any god that we recognize. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, he's back, one of our favorites. We lean on these guys, uh, elections-daily.com. We were early adapters to them way back in the day, our friend Eric and company, and this man has been on multiple times on the program. You're going to see him a lot this year, I promise you. They do great work. Joe Zemanski, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. It's the end of my uh, spring semester here at George Mason. We're just finishing up here, uh, so I'm ready to get. I'm getting ready to head back uh, back home to Pennsylvania. Uh, by the end of uh, this upcoming week, I'm getting ready to head back home to Pennsylvania, where there's going to be a lot of stuff happening there. But I know uh, we want to focus on another uh, key Midwestern state today uh, with their big primary last night in Ohio. Yeah, you'll get home just in time to vote, won't you? Uh, oh, yeah. Let's talk about Ohio. It was a marquee matchup for all the wrong reasons. Let's start with the Senate race. Uh, back home where I come from, we call that a big old hot mess. Uh, our British friends would call it an omni shambles. Uh, I watched your coverage of it on the YouTube channel. You guys do excellent live feeds on these elections nights. I've gotten to watching you folks and your uh, partnership with Decision Desk. Did I detect a little bit of disappointment there when all of a sudden J.D. Vance kind of started pulling away at kind of about the eight o'clock hour or so? Were you surprised that this turned into kind of a comfortable win for him, about a seven, eight point win? You know, I I think... We had some members of the panel who were more disappointed than others. Uh, you know, personally, I, I didn't think Vance was the worst of the field, personally. Uh, I thought some of the comments made by Josh Mandel and, you know, some just a lot of the stuff that he was saying to try and uh, gain primary support, I thought would actually hurt him more in a general election than anything J.D. Vance has said uh, so far. But I was surprised at how about how comfortable it was becoming. I don't think we expected the election day vote vote to go that heavily for Vance as it did in a lot of key counties. Uh, he overtook Matt Dolan, who ended up finishing third uh, in a lot of uh, counties through election day vote, where Dolan uh, led with the early vote. And then when election day votes started coming in, uh, that's where Vance had overtake him in a couple of key counties in around the Dayton and Cleveland uh, areas 
Uh, so, you know, I think I was surprised by the margin in the end. I wasn't necessarily surprised in the uh, result. Uh, you know, Vance, after the Trump endorsement, had become one of the three favorites. It was pretty clearly by the end of the week, a three rate race between him, uh, Mandel and Matt Dolan. Uh, you know, and in the end, I think uh, those, undec- those undecideds that were left, you know, they looked at the Trump endorsement and said, you know what, J.D. Vance is our guy. I'm going to go in there on Election Day. I'm going to check his name by the ballot. And, uh, you know, it was a race that was close, but it was, I think, the margin of victory for Vance uh, still shows, I think, the effect of the Trump endorsement. Maybe not to the level it used to be, but still shows that effect there and how it can really change a campaign around uh, especially considering before that endorsement, Vance was pretty uh, clearly languishing around third, fourth place. Yeah, and this one was really clear when I was watching y'all's coverage on elections-daily.com on the YouTube channel. It was really clear cut because, of course, the first returns you get on an election, the way we do things nowadays, is the early voting comes in first, and then you're waiting for the election day stuff, especially the way Ohio had it set up. And it was exactly like you said, just as soon as the election day stuff started coming in, especially Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland area, um, as soon as the election day, it was really apparent within what 15, 20 minutes, those first yep. three or four returns that, oh, yeah, the election day had swung to Vance with credit words due. That's got to be the Trump endorsement, because like you said, Vance bounced between third, fourth. He was second a couple of times. Gibbons took the lead for a while. Mandel had a lead for a while. Dolan kind of had a late surge in a way. There's just no other way to do this. Uh, I don't think J.D. Vance wins this without that endorsement. No, I I, I think. uh you know, there was a lot of criticism from people who who likes the you know who like Trump and also uh, people who don't like him the whole bunch. But people in my circle who who work in both and work in that area who say, you know, Vance was not really running uh, the best campaign uh, until he got the Trump endorsement. A lot of people agree that's where that was really turning around. Uh, you know, without that endorsement, if you know Trump endorses someone else like a Mandel or a Gibbons, or if he had stayed out of it completely, uh, I don't think JD Vance is the nominee currently, but that's not the world we're living in. Uh, and it shows, I think, the extent that the Trump endorsement works currently. And I think I sh- it shows how important it is in, a, in a, such a split field like we had in Ohio. I mean, we, we can't forget Mike Gibbons still got around 13% of the vote as well, which is not in such a highly competitive race. It's certainly not a, you know, uh, on, you know, a bad number, and it's not a number that didn't have an effect on this race. Yeah, Vance won with about 32-33%. That'll get refined upwards, let's call it 35-ish. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement, but it's a split field, like you said. Okay, let's preview the race. Uh, Tim Tim Ryan won very comfortably. He won 70-30-ish. What does that race look like in Ohio? He's trying to moderate. He's trying to do kind of the classic moderate, blue-collar, little more Youngstown than D.C. kind of sort of thing for Ohio. How's he going to match up with the new populist nativist J.D. Vance, who is coming off a big win? You know what? I still think Ohio is going to be one of the hardest, hardest states for Democrats to do anything uh, in 2022. You know, it was a state that voted pretty relatively to the right of the nation uh, in, in 2020, actually. I mean, even though the margin uh, between Trump and Biden was basically the same as it was between Trump and Hillary, in uh, 2016, you know, we have to remember the country moved three points to the left in terms of nationwide popular vote uh, compared for, in 2020 compared to 2016. So Ohio is actually more to the right of the nation in 2020 than it was in 2016. You know, this is just a state that's really become very, very hard uh, for Democrats to win. Uh, there's not really expansion in the right areas, uh, parts of suburban areas and mostly especially the exurbs uh, in Ohio are very, very deep red. 
Uh, you still have some very populous areas like Maho uh, populous areas like Mahoning, where Youngstown is, and around the Akron and Canton areas that are trending Republican. And these areas do have a lot of people in them. Ohio has truly kind of just kind of been the basin of this white working class vote uh, trending to Republicans, kind of like Iowa has kind of lost its swing state vote, uh, state swing state status in the last two years to become more of a uh, Republican tinge state compared to, you know, 2004, 2008, 2012. So, you know, I think it's gonna be really hard. I think Tim Ryan is definitely the best that Democrats could have gotten in terms of that race, but especially with Mike DeWine coming, uh, winning renomination, he's heading up that governor's ticket again. Uh, you look at the number and total votes between the two primaries. I, I, I just don't see it in Ohio. I think Vance wins relatively comfortably, probably around eight to 10 points. Uh, I think, you know, Ryan, uh, I think does overperform uh, the, the margins that I think we could see in the governor's race. But uh, I think, I think it's going to be very, very hard for him to pull out a win. And the fundamentals are really just not there for him. Yeah. I mentioned Youngstown on purpose because uh, Joe Zemanski from Elections Daily joining us. I mentioned Youngstown on purpose because I know you guys, you love your numbers and you love your swing counties. Uh, Mahoning County, uh, which is Youngstown Alliance, that's one of the biggest swing counties in the country. They went Obama, huge Trump, huge back to Biden. It's, I mean, eye-popping numbers, 30, 40-point swings. Isn't that indicative of just how volatile Ohio has been over the last few years? And is that where you start talking about, man, I don't know if Tim Ryan can keep this to single digits or not unless J.D. Vance shoots himself in the foot? Yeah, I think that's that's really going to be the issue. And this is where I think why I do think that actually Vance was a better nominee for Republicans than I think Josh Mandel was. You know, Vance, as much as he's run, you know, run in a certain way, we cannot forget is still a very well-educated individual who, you know, is a, you know, a Yale graduate. You know, this is not a guy who's going to shoot himself in the foot on a debate stage against Tim Ryan, you know, in college, he would have been in that situation. He's gone on book tours before he understands how to talk to people. You know, it's not a hard thing uh, to see, you know, I think Vance do better. I think it's not a hard thing to see him do well. And uh, I, I really do think that, you know, de we Democrats are kind of overestimating the idea that Vance is going to somehow uh, underperform. Uh, compared to the compared to the norm that we're starting to see in Ohio, I think that's actually kind of an overrated statement uh, compared to some of the analysts. Now, I would ask you about the Ohio House races, except we didn't have any. Uh, we only had one or two because the maps got hung up in court. Uh, is this something we're going to be seeing in other states? Uh, I know a couple of years ago in North Carolina, we did three elections in 18 months because of the court rulings on maps. Is Are we going to see this in other places going forward? Because a lot of these states, there's still some court holdups. This is probably more dramatic in Ohio than some of these other states are going to be. But is this something we still need to keep an eye on? Well, yeah, obviously, while Ohio, uh, by basically sheer force of refusing to listen to the state Supreme Court, uh, did get their House of Representatives elections uh, to uh, their their congressional maps and their congressional elections going last night, uh, but their state house and state senate uh, races, unlike Indiana, uh, were not able to be completed because those maps still have not been passed yet. And we're going to see this problem kind of probably come up in New York, where it looks like they've pushed back uh, congressional and uh, state senate races back to August. But right now, it seems like they're going to keep their statewide and state assembly races uh, in the earlier date because of court orders there so far. Uh, you know, this is a possibility in Missouri. This is a possibility 
maybe even in Kansas, uh, where, where we're starting to, where we're still playing around with court and map issues. You know, this is not an issue that's gone away, surprisingly, uh, as this issue's become uh, much more bloody in the way of redistricting. You know, it's not something that we've uh, gotten rid of yet. So uh, uh, New York really is kind of the state to watch right now where we could see, again, you know, separate elections for key races uh, within the, the summer time period. So, you know, it's certainly still something that's going on. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it happens anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Governor DeWine won very comfortably. Uh, there were some protest votes, but there, that race was not in doubt. Uh, Nan Wally will uh, match up against him. It's former Dayton mayor. Uh, what line do you put on that? Is that pretty much safe? Is it lean? What do you think for the Governor DeWine? I think for Governor DeWine, it's pretty safe. Uh, you know, he's had some issues with the, as we saw last night, he did get under 50% of the total vote last night, uh, because, because of other candidates, uh, involved in the race. He, uh, his margin of victory was around 20 points. I believe over Jim Renacci, uh, in that race, uh, you know, I, I think DeWine is fine. Most people believe DeWine will win comfortably, you know, uh, Republicans, they may have been frustrated with him, but they're not very likely to be so frustrated with him that they vote him out, that they vote with him out or vote. Don't go the vote uh, for him because they're going to be turning out for other races. Uh, you know, DeWine's popular. You know, he's just kind of the, the similar model, I think, of Rod Portman in 2016. You know, he's going to be very hard to beat. Nan Whaley's not a bad candidate, I think, by any means. She's been seen as someone as a rising star. But I think her place in the future could be potentially in a Dayton-based congressional seat if a fair map is drawn. I don't think it'll be the governor's office. Uh, we have this currently rated right a safe Republican, and it's pretty hard for me to see that change. All right. There was an undercard uh, election that is more Twitter famous than in real life famous. Uh, but you and I are Twitter animals, so we're going to talk about it for a second. Uh, Nina Turner, uh, this was a replay of the special election. A lot of people thought this would be closer than it was. Uh, she is a Bernie Sanders AOC uh, in that vein of progressives, and she got absolutely trucked. 70-30 uh, type of split in that. Uh <laughs> I don't even know how to really explain that because I, I didn't think she'd win, but I didn't think it was going to be that bad. Uh, is this one of those Twitter ain't real life moments for our progressive friends of like, OK, you can't just trot people out. And I, I bring it up because I thought uh, your co-host made an excellent point on the uh, broadcast on Elections Daily last night. She didn't run any TV ads. She just tried to do turn out the vote stuff that that model just ain't going to work, is it? Yeah, this was the same. It was the same issues that we saw on the special uh, multiplied by 10. You know, uh, Brown with the incumbency now, she hasn't had any type of scandals or anything. There's been no problems with Charlotte Brown as a congresswoman in Cleveland. Uh, actually, Turner actually probably lost some area that was good to her uh, in the Akron area under this map. This seat is now just entirely a uh, Cuyahoga County and Cleveland. Uh, no longer takes in parts of Summit County and Akron. It wasn't a big part, but it was a part that uh, Turner did better in. So she lost some support there. You know, it's just it's it's not very necessarily easy for me to say that, you know, Nina Turner really had a chance. It doesn't seem like she learned it all from her race uh, back in the summer regarding the special election. You know, she was kind of just there. And once again, thought, you know, we have this idea among, I think, grassroots that if you just can get out enough of our support, and you just knock doors, you're going to be able to win races. Uh, that's that's not really how these things work. You have to get on TV. And you have to get out ads and you have to get out flyers. Uh, if you don't do that, uh, you're not going to see success. 
Yeah, Joe Zemanski, Elections Daily. They do great breakdown work. Make sure you go to elections-daily.com. All kinds of great stuff. Going to take a quick break when we come back. Uh, these primaries are going to start coming hot and heavy the rest of May. Pretty much every Tuesday, we're going to be doing some voting. We're going to run through those with him. We'll put a bow on Ohio and neighboring Indiana. Had a couple interesting tidbits to talk about. More with Joe Zemanski on Hard Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Joe Zemanski is still joining us, elections-daily.com. Uh, he does great work over there with them. Highly recommend them. Been with them since uh, they first started out. Was with them when they got shut down in the middle of an election. We talked about that <laughs> some other time. They've bounced back. They are now partnered with Decision Desk HQ. They're big time, uh, but good guys that just kind of said, hey, we can cover elections better, and they go out and do it. Uh, make sure you follow and support them. Okay, uh, real quick, we talked about Ohio. Next door in Indiana, though, there was a couple things. What did you see in Indiana? Is there any notable tidbits we need to grab from there? Really, uh, there were two uh, key Republican primaries in Indiana. Uh, one was uh, in Indiana's first district. I'll mention this one first because it was the uh, least. It was the least close of these two key races. Uh, that seat's been drawn. It's only about a Biden plus seven seat. We haven't rated as lean Democratic right now uh, with incumbent Frank Mervan, uh, Jennifer Ruth Green. Uh, won the Republican nomination there pretty decisively with over half the vote, I believe. Uh, she's a, um, a, a former vet. She's a veteran and Republican activist in the area. She's someone who can definitely put the seat into play for Republicans uh, come 2022 in the House races. Uh, definitely one of the probably the best nominee we've seen in what is a right trending seat uh, in this Northwest in Northwest Indiana, which is one of the uh, more right trending areas of the country. Uh, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this race shapes out. Uh, we've really expected to get some pretty heavy monetary backing from both the NRCC and uh, other Republican groups. It'll be really fascinating to see how this group goes uh, and how this race goes now that it's between Mervan and uh, Ruth Green as a Republican nominee. Uh, but also I want to, but the closer race though, and the one that was more interesting, I think was the Indiana 09 primary. Uh, this is a safe Republican seat, uh, but uh, incumbent Congressman Trey Hollingsworth uh, retired uh, this year, he did not run for re-election, so it was uh, basically up between uh, Aaron Houchin, who's a state senator from Indiana, who was at least by uh, endorsed, excuse me, by Elise Steph- Stefanik and her pack, uh, as, and then uh, Mike Sodrell, who was the former representative from this area when it was uh, much more swingy. Uh, he represented this area from 2004 to 2006, and uh, he was endorsed by the Freedom Caucus. Uh, but Houchin actually got the victory here uh, by about 10, 11 points, I believe. Uh, over Sodrell. Uh, this is a safe Republican seat. Uh, Houghton is another one of many Republican candidates we've seen, especially female ones in recent cycles, endorsed by Elise Stefanik and her pack that have seen success in primaries. Uh, that's, a, that's a good win for Stefanik. Uh, and definitely gets her a uh, foot soldier in, in the caucus for her. Uh, again, Houghton will be, this will be a safe RC. Houghton will be elected here uh, almost without any doubt. All right. Next up, uh, May the 10th, Nebraska and West Virginia. West Virginia is an interesting one, not just because I'm a West Virginia homer, but because you have uh, a semi-rare incumbent versus incumbent because of redistricting. They're losing my home district, the third district. They're going down to just two districts. Uh, And Nebraska, anything in either of those races that jump out at you? Uh, Really, I think uh, there's there's a key race in each state. Obviously, you mentioned the incumbent versus incumbent race uh, in West Virginia for the new first district. Uh, That'll be David McKinley versus Alex Mooney. Actually, I believe it's the new second district. Actually, excuse me, they changed the way they did. uh, You're right. They did the uh, 
they did the numbering. They had the southmost district now represented by Carol Miller is now the first. And uh, the second is now the combo of McKinley and Mooney's old districts. Uh, this is going to be a fascinating race. Uh, Mooney has uh, kind of endor- uh, has positioned himself as the more right-wing uh, candidate. McKinley has positioned himself as the more uh, West, uh, maybe more establishment candidate. I can't say moderate. David McKinley is definitely not a moderate. Uh, uh, one of the big issues that these guys diverge upon is actually the infrastructure bill. Uh, McKinley voted for it while Mooney voted against it. Uh, this is kind of an interesting race. And it will be very interesting to see kind of how we go through uh, loca- you know, uh, localities and interest in West Virginia. Uh, one of the attacks that's been routinely used on Mooney is that he's a carpetbagger. Uh, he was actually a state legislator in Maryland uh, for quite a while before deciding to pack up his things just over the border uh, between Maryland and West Virginia uh, to get over uh, to become a congressman in 2014. Mooney has actually routinely underperformed uh, considering of numbers in his congressional seat actually probably compared to what a generic West Virginia Republican would do. Uh, but polling so far has been all over the place. Most of it shows has shown a slight Mooney lead, but we haven't gotten any polling since uh, late winter uh, period in this race. So we're kind of going in a bit blind. I'd say Mooney's probably slightly favored, but uh, if regional interests take hold, I could very easily see McKinley uh, pull this one out narrowly. And then we move over to Nebraska uh, incumbent Governor Pete Ricketts, the Republican, is term limited. Uh, that means there's going to be a big race, of course, there in the primary for governor. Uh, it's kind of between three candidates right now. Uh, Brett Lidstrom, who's on the more moderate side of the, uh, the uh, in, uh, Nebraska GOP. He's been endorsed by actual moderate Democrats, Bob Christ and Brad Ashford. Uh, Ashford has actually now recently passed away, so may he rest in peace. Uh, but then there's also a very controversial figure in businessman and big time Trump donor, Charles Herbster. Uh, he he was gotten Trump's endorsement. Trump actually recently did a rally for him there in Nebraska. Uh, but Herbster has come under uh, uh, tens of accusations, uh, over 10 accusations of sexual assault from uh, female members of the uh, Nebraska Senate and Nebraska politics. Uh, that's been a problem for him. And then uh, there's Jeff Pillen. Uh, who's the uh, endorsed by current Governor Rickens. Uh, he's been the leader right now in recent polling, but it's been very narrow between those top three. Uh, so we're kind of flying blind there as well. I don't believe there's been any independent polling of this race from uh, mainly Trafalgar is the big one. Uh, we'll see if they release a poll of this race or not uh, before next week. But if they don't, we're going to be kind of flying blind with only uh, internals to look at. So it'll be really fascinating to see kind of where this goes. That one and the McKinley versus Mooney primary are by far and away the two to watch on May 10th, which is kind of a nice little amuse-bouche uh, uh, pre-starter to what we're going to get on May 17th. Yeah, and May 17th, Idaho, Kentucky, and Oregon. It's nice that they're coming to play, but let's be honest here, the two primetime mainline election North Carolina and Pennsylvania. I know you're salivating over Pennsylvania because that's your backyard, but start with North Carolina. This is another one of those Trump came out. He endorsed Ted Budd. I actually interviewed him a couple of weeks ago for radio that really upset the state party. Kind of kind of what you're going to hear about from Ohio. Same thing. Really upstate upset the state party folks when he did that. He didn't tell them ahead of time. He just picked Ted Budd. Ted Budd looks like he's in position to win that race now. Uh, North Carolina, big deal. And then, of course, Pennsylvania is really a mess. And that's your backyard. So you can tee that one up for us. Yeah, well, starting with North Carolina, there's really going to be two key primaries uh, to watch. Uh, actually, three, I think, should be mentioned. Number one is, of course, the Senate primary. But it does seem like we've seen Ted Budd pull, start to pull away. Uh, Budd started campaigning more. He started putting more ads on, on television. 
Uh, he's starting to pull away from former Governor Pat McCrory, who's, uh, to my knowledge, trying to kind of desperately gain uh, some last-second attempts here to get over Bud. doesn't seem to be working. Uh, I've personally, for my uh, own uh, personal opinion, I always kind of thought that I would like Bud more than McCrory, just because Bud is kind of your typical generic Republican in North Carolina does well. Uh, McCrory has a history as governor. He's got a pretty big legislative record there, and he also lost. Uh, in 2016, as Trump was winning the state in that governor's race to current Governor Cooper of North Carolina, who's a Democrat. So, you know, there's questions there, I think, about McCrory and uh, electability and maybe would he put deceit into play. Uh, I think Bud is a decent enough favorite right now. Uh, I would probably give him 80, 20 odds to win this race, quite honestly, uh, barring a shocker. Uh, it would be pretty uh, hard to see uh, Bud not win this race. And then I think really the other key one is uh, the uh, North Carolina's new 13th congressional district, uh, the primaries there. That's the new competitive seat in the Sand Hills area uh, through the redistricting process. Uh, that'll be a very fascinating one to watch. Uh, you know, uh, Bo Hines is the Trump-endorsed candidate there, but he's come under a lot of accusations about carpetbagging. Uh, people have said he's running a poor campaign. Again, a race we haven't really seen a whole lot of polling there for, for a race that's only there in two weeks. Again, kind of flying blind right now. I don't really know who's going to be the favorite there. But it's also a fair thing to mention right now, North Carolina's 11th district, uh, Madison Cawthorn, who has had uh, what someone probably call uh, a last two weeks of hell uh, from April. Uh, he's had just felt like scandal after scandal came out about Cawthorn. Uh, as Tom Tills has put a lot of energy into uh, State Senator Chuck Edwards' campaign to try and knock off Cawthorn. Uh, that's definitely one to watch still. Cawthorn has lost ground in polling, it looks like, compared to where he was previously before Tilla started uh, gaining support for Edwards. That one will still be interesting to watch, I think, come May 17th. Yeah, Cawthorn got code redded by the Republican establishment. There's no doubt that uh, they've decided to run him off because he's got uh, one or two decent primary challengers that anybody would take over him. Uh, also, maybe more stuff coming out on him soon. All right. Try to contain your excitement. <laughs> the Keystone State, Pennsylvania. Uh, the Senate's up, the House is up, the governor's up. Uh, let's start with the Senate. Does anybody really have a good handle on what's going on in this Senate race? You know, at this moment, there does seem to be three candidates right now to watch. That's the Trump-endorsed candidate and Dr. Mehmet Oz, uh, the famous TV, uh, uh, TV host. Uh, David McCormick, a businessman from the Pittsburgh area, and uh, Kathy Barnett, a conservative commentator from Montgomery County. You know, this is going to be a really fascinating race to watch here. Uh, you know, Oz has the Trump endorsement, but he got that relatively early. He got that back in early April. Uh, polling since then hasn't really shown him pulling away. Uh, hopefully, we're going to see some Trafalgar results from uh, the state of Pennsylvania soon, hopefully before the end of this week. We've been told there's a poll coming in both that in the GOP primary for Senate and for governor. So hopefully we're going to get some more accurate results soon. Uh, but the real issue I would have to say right now uh, is that Oz probably just because of that Trump endorsement has a little bit of that favorite, uh, but it's not certainly not a closed deal. Uh, there was certainly some anger among Republican uh, base conservatives uh, because uh, Barnett is kind of running on this three-way ticket uh, with uh, controversial figures and Doug Mastriano and Teddy Daniels. Uh, they're kind of running as this three-way ticket. So Barnett has that kind of groundswell support, uh, but Oz still has the Trump endorsement. That's still probably Kingmaker. Uh, McCormick is certainly still a player. He's the only one that comes from the western side of the state. Uh, Pennsylvania in primaries has a history of geographic voting because we put counties uh, next to people's names on the primary ballot. So that's going to be key there, too. Still certainly a race to watch. 
we're going to skip down to the 20, uh, excuse me, wrong date, 24th. Uh, Alabama, Arkansas, the Texas uh, runoff for attorney general. That's the George P. Bush versus Ken Paxton. Uh, that'll be something to pay attention to for a couple of interesting little side points because you have Bush dynasty versus uh, sitting under indictment. That'll be a fun one. Uh, <laughs> but let's let's be honest. The headliner there is one of the races. I've called this the race to watch in the midterms to kind of tell how all this is going to go, especially when it comes to the involvement of one Donald J. Trump, Georgia. Uh, this is going to be a very interesting race. They've got the Senate, the House, the governor, attorney general, the secretary of state. Of course, all that goes back to those Georgia runoffs and all the mess that went on there. Let's start with governor. Um, Trump came out and endorsed Purdue. Purdue is getting run off the board by uh, Governor Brian Kemp. That race looks like it's over. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, post-Trump endorsement, we've rarely seen this Republican primary. So this is where... Some people are wondering uh, how much effect the Trump endorsement is having in places that have been more typically Republican versus places that have gone Republican in the Trump era. So this is where we're seeing the difference between a state like Georgia and a state like Ohio and the primary voters there. Uh, You know, since that Trump endorsement of Purdue has actually fallen in the polling uh, compared to where he was pre-Trump endorsement, Uh, that's because of two debates uh, where Purdue was was routinely outclassed. by Brian Kemp, you know, Kemp, you know, has uh, just out really, I, I'm repeating myself, but he just outclassed uh, Purdue in both debates. Uh, since then, Kemp's been re- routinely polling around 55 to 58 percent of the vote, uh, which would get him in the through the runoff position here uh, for for these for for that primary here. That would be a big deal. Uh, that would put him on the level of Herschel Walker, who seems pretty in that uh, GOP Senate primary, seems pretty likely to avoid a runoff. Uh, it seems to have always been likely to avoid a runoff right now. Uh, but that if, if Kemp is a, a clear winner, that could have effects down the ballot, really in every place except the Secretary of State's race, where it does seem like Brad Raffensperger is going to finish second to, uh, to Congressman Jody Heiss in that uh, primary and then likely lose in the runoff, one would say. Yeah, but to, uh, to his credit, though, he was supposed to be DOA and not get three votes in the whole state. Yeah. He's made that race competitive, which is interesting enough, but talk about that some other time all right the other piece of this you just mentioned herschel walker uh this will be senator Raphael warnock he was he's actually the junior senator from georgia just because he ran in the special elections it's funny how these things work out this is really really close to when we did this in the georgia runoff that race got ugly it got personal walker is up by a couple points in most polling once this goes to head to head how do you see that race shaking out same as 2020 you know, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get expensive. Uh, we forget that Georgia in those runoff periods in the span of about a month, we saw about 500 between the two races, between the two runoff races for the Senate. We saw about five hundred million dollars in spending on these races, which I mean, come on, that's half a billion dollars. That's a crazy amount to spend on even two things. That's a crazy number to spend. Uh, it's going to get nasty. It's going to get expensive in Georgia. Atlanta is an expensive market. Uh, there's a lot of media markets you have to target across the state. Uh, it's going to get nasty. It's going to get expensive. But there is kind of this wonder if we're going to see that swing back in uh, Georgia, you know, either in just heightened Republican turnout in the rural areas and maybe a slight swing back in some of those Atlanta suburbs. You know, we forget that Georgia was still a very, very narrow state in 2020. Uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how people perform in this race and how Walker performs against Warnock. Uh, this is going to be really kind of one of those headliner races for 2022 for sure. 
Yeah, we were talking to our friend Jason Downey just a couple of episodes ago. Um, he said it is huge for Brian Kemp to get through without doing a runoff. We know uh, him and Abrams, too, is going to we assume it's going to be close. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be loud. Uh, this is going to be a rematch for the ages as far as governor electoral politics go. Do you agree with him? Is it a really, really important deal for him to avoid a runoff here? It causes less time in the primary. You don't have to spend money on a primary anymore. It would be a big deal if Kemp avoids a runoff. That means you run right into the general election. Uh, that would give him about four, about four months, basically, to basically just go head on against Abrams. That's exactly what he wants. And uh, if he's able to do that, that's a big deal and would probably be a minus for Stacey Abrams and her campaign, compared, considering that Kemp is now the incumbent in this potentially our favorite year. Uh, it would be hard for me to say that uh, Kemp would not really, really enjoy a nice little boost in all regards in terms of how this race is going to go uh, if he is able to avoid a runoff. Abrams versus Kemp. Give me a number. Kemp 54, Abrams 46. That wide? I think it could be. I think it could be. All right. Um, Walker and Warnock. Uh, Warnock, uh, Walker 51 and a half, Warnock 49. That's margin of error, my friend. You sure? Yep. <laughs> that close. Uh, uh, we already talked about Heinz is probably going to get the Secretary of State. If Trump doesn't play nice with Brian Kemp, how would that affect this race? You know, that's a really good question. Because uh, we would, we, I mean, this, it would be an unprecedented thing, really, to see uh, sitting uh, a former president go very hard against a person who would have won his party's nomination. You know, that, that would be an unprecedented thing if that were to occur. And, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I know I hate to, hate to say this, but I really don't know how that would go if Trump would, you know, as he's threatened to do many times, just endorse Stacey Abrams because he hates Brian Kemp that much. You know, you, you wonder who, who would go for that, and that would really kind of change the effect of things. You know, uh, it, it, it would be an unprecedented thing. It would be an unprecedented decision in terms of politics. Uh, one where I, I really do not know how that would go. He doesn't have to endorse her. He just has to go after Kemp. <laughs> that the same effect we and this, the Georgia runoff effect and here we go again. I don't know that that's going to happen either. He says he's going to do it, so I I think this is going to be the race to watch in the midterms, especially when we start projecting twenty twenty four and how much stroke uh, President Trump's still going to have going forward. Uh, we'll see, my friend Joe Zemanski. He does outstanding work. All the folks at election daily dot com. We have him on. We have um, Sarah Stook comes on who does those great history pieces. They've got great stuff over there. Let folks know about elections-daily.com and your social media where they can follow you until we have you back in a couple of weeks because you're going to be a regular this summer, buddy. I'm just gonna, We're going to pencil you in right now. <laughs> uh, you can find us as, as uh, Andrew's been saying all day at elections-daily.com. Uh, that's our website where you can also sign up for uh, a weekly newsletter that gives you all of our articles from the week, but you can find us on social media at elections underscore daily. Uh, all of our YouTube uh, live streams that we uh, do on our YouTube election, uh, also just named elections daily, uh, also get live streamed directly to our Twitter account as well if you're more interested in watching us there. So give us a like and a follow, and you can find me personally at Joseph Samansky, uh, all one word on Twitter. That's where you'll see me post most of my stuff and, my, and uh, tweet out my an analysis uh, when election day comes around. Yep. He does good work. They do great work. Someday when I'm all grown up, maybe I'll even sneak on one of their live streams with them. We will see. <laughs> uh, Joe Zemanski, thanks for the insight, buddy. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir.
Let's go over to the UK, our friends in the House of Commons, Parliament, the benches, those famous green benches you can watch during PMQs on Wednesday, like I frequently do. There was some drama. Uh, a member of Parliament named Neil Parrish got himself into some trouble over his phone usage while sitting in those benches. Apparently, he was not paying attention to what was going on because he was watching pornography. Now, originally, uh, this is from Sky News, um, Mr. Parrish uh, initially denied doing it, but then he came forward after admitting he had twice watched pornography in the chamber. He claimed the first time was accidental after looking at tractors online, but the second one was a moment of madness. Uh, let's pause for a second. The tractor one, he said he was looking at combined harvesters, a particular model of combine harvester called the dominator. He was looking at something that was a different usage of the word dominator, but we are FCC and family friendly here. So I will leave that to you to figure out on your own. However, uh, he clearly got caught red handed doing this uh, back to Sky News. 65 year old farmer announced that he would be resigning after recognizing the furor and damage he was causing to his family and constituency. A statement from the Treasury said they had formally appointed Mr. Parrish, a conservative, to be a steward and bailiff of the manor of Northstead, a formality allowing the MPs resign from office. The announcement will trigger a by-election for his seat of Tiverton and Honiton, which is in Devon, though no dates have yet been said. They just did local elections, so they'll probably have to figure this one out, I assume. Uh, he had been held since 2010 by Mr. Parrish, who at the 2019 general election enjoyed a majority of more than 24,000 constituents. Uh, this comes after another Tory MP, Imran Ahmed Khan, resigned as an MP for Wakefield after he was found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. Not a great week in the House of Commons. Uh, folks, be careful with your phone, especially if you're sitting in a place that every inch of it is covered by video cameras. Goodbye, Mr. Parrish. Enjoy your retirement. Welcome back to the farm. Remember to delete your browser history. More hotel right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Tell Show. Okay, let's do some good news real quick. Uh, the couple from Oklahoma City was trying to get to Vegas to do a quickie Vegas-style wedding. The only problem was the airlines were not participating. Uh, this is from Fox 5 Vegas. Uh, on Sunday, April the 24th, Pam and Jeremy were fully dressed to travel. The company had a layover in Dallas. While at the DFW airport, their flight kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed until it was finally canceled. And a man named Chris, who was on the same canceled flight, approached the couple at the gate, told him he was an ordained minister, offered to help. And all three rebooked a flight on Southwest Airlines to Dallas Love Field, 20 minutes away. They barely made it onto the flight. But once the pilot found out, he was on board to help the couple. And he asked, this is a quote, so are you two trying to get to Vegas, get married? And we said, yeah, but we're trying, but we don't think we're going to make it. So we're just going to go ahead and get married on this plane. And he says, really? Yeah. And it was like they'd done it 100 times. Everything fell into place, said Pam. Uh, that would be the bride. Uh, flight attendants hung toilet paper streamers and created a sash made out of pretzel snack bags sewn together with cocktail picks for Chris Mitchum, the ordained minister. Once we got to the cruising altitude and we could get out of our seats, we had the wedding, Pam said. Passengers pressed their call buttons to light the aircraft as Pam walked down the airplane aisle. Everybody's cell phones turn on and their lights are on and it just lights up. And it says almost magically, oddly walking down this aisle with all these lights and phones and people taking selfies and music. And we got married at the front of the plane. Uh, passengers volunteered to help in the very back of the plane is a wedding photographer. And she says, would you like me to take some pictures? And we were like, yes, of course. Another passenger in front of us in the row in front of us said she had one little donut, 
but you can have it. You can always cut it in half, I reckon. Uh, so this will be the wedding cake. So we fed each other a piece of the donut, probably the most touching thing. She also had this little spiral notebook and she ripped out the pages she had written in and then wrote wedding guest album on the front for our flight. And it got passed around to the entire plane. So many people wrote sweet, nice, kind messages. Afterwards, we got to read it and we got choked up and I couldn't even read them out loud. They were so sweet, said Pam. Chris mentioned the ordained minister is also in broadcast, luckily, and was able to shoot the whole thing in 4K video because, of course, they did in the year of our Lord 2022. Couple Dance to Marry You by Bruno Mars. The corporate culture on Southwest Airlines allows their employees to be flexible to adjust on the fly and do what we can do to make the passengers happy. And you know it was an experience that anybody on the plane would never forget. They're grateful for the crew and grateful for Chris, the stranger that made it all happen. The couple invited Chris to attend their destination wedding they are planning for Cabo this August. Rule of thumb, if you can marry people, do it. Might get a trip to Cabo later on. What a great story. Uh, that's only a 20-minute flight. I'd love to see what they were doing if you were flying from the U.S. to like Australia or somewhere where it's a 20-hour flight. might be a little different thing. But God bless them. All love and support to the happy couple. That'll do it for her tell. Make sure you're subscribing however you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms or on YouTube. Uh, again, the listens, the downloads, the views, they go up and up and up. And that's all because of you. Thank you so very much. We are so appreciative of you, the smartest, best audience out there that joins us for all our adventures and turning down the noise of the news cycle. So until we see you tomorrow for even more Herd Tale, we're going to finish this week out strong. We hope you and yours are well, wherever you are, across the street and around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.